Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. Today, I am happy to introduce Assemblyman Kevin Byrne of the 94th District in the state of New York. Kevin resides in Maypack with his wife, Brianna. And I didn't see this on your official bio, but if I remember correctly, you're also a new father. Is that correct? Yeah, he's about, uh, well, newish. He's about almost 16 months now. Oh, so it's, uh, congratulations. Right. No, he's running already. Congratulations. <laughs> Uh, Kevin is a Republican, and in 2018, was he was one of the five state legislators with the highest rating by the Conservative Party of New York. And now you're on your third term, correct? Correct. Obviously, the big news coming out this week, and I want to point out that we're recording this podcast on August 11th, one day after Governor Andrew Cuomo announces recognition, which will take place, I believe, 14 days from the announcement. Is the Assembly still proceeding with impeachment? There's going to be, I believe, a release. I haven't seen it yet from the Judiciary Committee at some point today, if it didn't go out late last night. And my understanding is they're going to at least proceed with the scheduled meetings. No decision on actual impeachment, but we've already committed significant state dollars and resources to this impeachment investigation. They hired a law firm to do a concurrent investigation. And I have been very vocal in that I want to see what those findings are. I want to see what their recommendations are. We've paid for it as taxpayers and we deserve to know what's in it. The important thing, Brett, that you know is it's not just about sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, which was the large story in the last uh, week after the AG's report. It also includes the undercounting, underreporting of nursing home deaths. It includes a $5.1 million book deal that was developed with state resources. It includes the obstruction, potential obstruction, retaliation, intimidation of uh, victims, and quite frankly, state lawmakers like my colleague, Ron Kim. So all those things were being reviewed in the impeachment investigation. So as of right here and right now, my main focus is let's make sure that doesn't just drop and go away. We have a right to know what they found out and make that public. So all New Yorkers, including those people that were wronged, can at least be vindicated by, by some degree. Now, I'm not overly uh, familiar with the impeachment process, but I assume a conviction by the state Senate would mean that Cuomo could not run for office in the state of New York in the future. Is that correct? Yes, that's my understanding as well. The, the Judiciary Committee chair confirmed that the other day. I think for the majority members in the Democratic Party, I'm not convinced they will push for a full through impeachment. I think they're happy with his resignation. But again, I think, you know, look at this in steps. Let's start by finding seeing what they found out. I want to see, I mean, I already felt there was enough public evidence when the governor's secretary, Melissa DeRosa, admitted to an intention to obstruct justice. I mean, that was a major alarm that should have caused concern by everybody. And that was earlier this year, well before the lion's share of sexual misconduct allegations were put forth. If he is ultimately impeached and convicted by the, the court of impeachment, which includes, includes the state senators, as well as representatives from the judiciary, it would prohibit him from running. Also, a high-level conviction, if he is charged with like a felony, that could prevent him from running as well. Now, why is everyone focusing on the sexual harassment scandal? Why does it seem that the nursing home scandal is getting ignored, at least by, I guess, the national media, the mainstream media? 
you know, and at least on the federal level, the Justice Department on the federal level dropped it. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I had a friend of mine from church who she was at a nurse, local nursing home in your district and she was exposed to COVID and she died, you know, tragedy. And I believe she was exposed to COVID because of Governor Cuomo's policies. So I'm just curious why that's not the bigger scandal here. You, me, and many other people feel the exact same way. You know, it's, I think it was kind of, it's been a slice of karma yesterday. August 10th was the day that the governor announced his intent to resign. August 10th was also the day of the public hearing uh, that I helped run as the ranker of the health committee seeking answers on the state's handling of COVID-19 adult care facilities, including nursing homes. It also happens to be that the hearing that Janice Dean was invited to and then taken off of the witness list for. So uh, one year later to that date, uh, having the governor resign, I think is, is a slice of karma. But to your point, other than the New York Post, the Times Union, and your paper, frankly, uh, Brett, you at least covered the story a little bit, even though it's local news, it affects people in the Maypac, Putnam, and Westchester area, they covered it. But other than that, the mainstream media, they ignored it for the most part. It was largely unreported, not until almost a year passed. And January of this year, there was another report from the attorney general, which validated everything that we were saying, that the governor's office, Department of Health, underreported the nursing home deaths by not including in that category nursing home residents that contracted the virus in the nursing home and died in a hospital. And it's very important because when we're looking at the measurement to see how can we craft better policy, how can we respond better to this virus, you need to know where the problems are. And it was spreading like wildfire. The governor's own words, it would spread through uh, like wildfire through dry grass was his words. And he was right. He was right. Except he put in policies that exacerbated that, made it much worse I think the media also, quite frankly, didn't pay enough attention to the $5.1 million book deal. It's kind of hard to not notice that the governor was being lauded for the better part of last year. People were calling themselves homosexuals for crying out loud. He got an Emmy. So he really did capitalize on this positive narrative. And then he got that $5.1 million book deal, which he developed with state resources. I mean, that's a major issue, too. And why are people comment, uh, you know, the, why are the, the media and all these politicians commenting on the sexual misconduct allegations more than anything else? I hate to say this, but I think it's the truth. On social media and in the media in general, I think sex sells. And sadly, seniors that are deceased didn't get enough attention. But I think that's what it really boils down to. Sometimes just the negative media in, in, the, in the press gets the clicks. And um, I think that's what it's about. But I'm committed to following through so we get true and full accountability. I have another theory. My other theory is that I know there were some other governors who had very similar policies in different states. And, you know, they were Democrat governors. And I think Michigan had a similar policy to New York State. And so it seems to me that if that became the bigger scandal from the media, then they would have to concede, you know, that these other states also are complicit with the scandal as well. And I think the media is afraid to then compare that with Governor DeSantis. I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that theory. I think it's fair. I did find it interesting that, you know, the after the AG's report, the most recent one came out, there was a group of neighboring Democratic governors calling for Governor Cuomo to resign. Some of them had similar policies, New Jersey being one of them. I do think that's a possibility. I do think also that if Governor Cuomo came out early on and said, hey, full disclosure, 
We were in the middle of a pandemic. We had these very, very scary projection models staring us in the face. We thought we were going to overwhelm the healthcare system. All the hospital executives and the medical experts told us that we had to do this, so we did it. In hindsight, we were all wrong. It was a mistake. It's tragic. And we're going to move forward from this, and we're going to learn from this. And it did increase death and mortality. It did not attribute to all 15,000 deaths. I think some people go a little bit too harsh, but it definitely is correlated with at least 1,000 deaths for seniors. That's very significant. But the governor didn't do that. And this is where it gets really bad. It was the cover-up, right? I mean, the crime is pretty bad. It's very bad, but it's the cover-up. It's the underreporting of those nursing home deaths. It is the Department of Health for New York State actually coming out with a July report in 2020 just completely defending all of the decision-making and saying that the March 25th directive had zero impact. That's what they came out with, just absolutely defiant. And then the governor's administration, his spokesperson, Rich as a party, all of them, they're going after the critics, families that lost loved ones, saying that they were part of a death cult, going after Janice Dean, going after Janice, Janice Dean's sister-in-law, telling her to go get a life, trying to demonize and ridicule anyone who's had the audacity to ask a question. And then, you know what, hindsight, they were right to ask the question. That is, I think, the bigger issue is a cover-up and attacking and intimidating and retaliating against anyone that had the, the audacity to ask a question. And Janice that's the reporter from Fox News? Correct. She's the meteorologist, yep, that lost her in-laws. Okay. And I've seen her on a bunch of times talking about that tragedy. Uh, and actually, I, I want to point out, you know, my friend from church who died of COVID, she was in a nursing home. She died at the hospital. So she was not physically in the nursing home when she died. You know, certainly I think her death should be counted as a, a nursing home death because of that policy. I, I guess I, I have another question. You know, why is all this happening now? And I heard an interesting theory last night. Lindsay Boylan wrote a tweet in December 2020 about sexual harassment that took place in 2018. Was this purposely omitted or not discussed until after the news media called the presidential election for Joe Biden? December, I think the national news media, I'm pretty sure they called the election um, before December. Like mid right. I'm not sure exactly what day her tweet was. I do think the governor used his national platform to impact that presidential election. I think there's fair questions about why our state governmental leaders did not utilize the federal resources that were given to us the way that we could and should have. The Westchester County Center, and I represent Westchester, as you know, was never fully utilized. It was never activated. Not a single person went in there during the height of the pandemic. You know, why? The USNS Comfort, I think, cared for less than 200 people. Millions of units of PPE were provided by the federal government. So I think that's a question as far as a fair question about uh, were they trying to, you know, have this political advantage and leverage. But her tweet, I don't. I think that was afterwards. What bothers me more about that is she had that public tweet. It was the first real public accusation, at least in the last couple of decades. I think there were some from the 1990s that no one's really reported on that you could talk about. She came out and his office leaked out her personnel files to victim shame and attack her. This is the same governor that passed all these different types of laws to make it harder for employers to do business, but also make it put in very, very strict annual sexual harassment guidelines, which quite frankly, a lot of us support. It's an extra burden for us to go through, but there's definitely good intentions. But he preaches all of this. And at the same time, his administration is victim shaming and retaliating against someone that made an accusation. A lot of the media just let it go. They didn't do anything on it. 
It was not until, quite frankly, after the breaking news about his secretary, Melissa DeRosa, potentially obstructing justice, and then followed up by his attack on Ron Kim, my colleague Assemblyman Ron Kim from Queens, who came out and said that the governor threatened to, quote, destroy him. After that, you had Charlotte Bennett, who said because of people like Ron Kim having the guts to stand up to this bully, that she and Lindsey Boylan came out and continued to speak up. And that's when things really took off. And this, even this impeachment investigation, it lagged for the last five months. They were slow walking this thing. And there was a real concern by me and others that um, I know members on that committee, some of them really were doing their best, but there were forces that were beyond their control. New cycles changed quick. And there was concern that the governor was going to you know, shake this thing loose. It wasn't until the AG came out with her other report last week on the sexual misconduct allegations that completely supercharged everything. That got to the point where the governor couldn't shake this loose. You had the president of the United States, Joe Biden, calling on him to resign. You had the neighboring Democratic governors, the state Democratic Party chair, the entire New York congressional delegation, Republican and Democrats called on him to resign. It was over. Even Bill Maher called on him to resign. Well, so I found it strange, though. Um, I, I read much of the report. Now, why didn't the attorney general, Letitia James, why didn't she prosecute Cuomo? It seems strange that she just issued a report. And, you know, I mean, is that even her role to issue a report? I mean, isn't her role to prosecute? So if you go if you walk this back a little bit from when those allegations came about, there was a lot of pressure on the governor, I believe, in March of this year to have an independent investigation. The governor tried to undermine that politically from the very beginning. He tried to refer to his own appointed investigator. Like, no, you don't get to appoint your own investigator. And then he tried to say, oh, we're going to have uh, Chief Judge Jan DeFiori pick somebody. No, she's a political ally of your, your governor. Like, you're not going to be able to do that. We had to really push him until he referred the inquiry to the attorney general. So that was directly referred by the governor. And that's actually a, a problem uh, the state legislature should address when we have issues like this. It's probably not appropriate for yet. You have to wait for the governor to refer the investigation I think there could be problems with that in the future. And the attorney general, I would agree with you. I think she should be able to prosecute some of these. She made it very clear that the governor, based on the evidence they have and the corroborating evidence and all, all everything else that they substantiated with sworn testimony, that the, the governor violated both state and federal laws. I would agree that she should be able to prosecute. She also is the people's attorney as the elected attorney general. So there might be some conflict of interest with where she can represent the governor and his administrators. I think that was her justification to say, hey, here's the evidence, here's the information, and we're going to leave it to the local DAs to prosecute. And they've taken her up on that. Uh, the Westchester DA, Mimi Roach, I'm a pretty conservative Republican. She's a liberal Democrat, and she's doing the right thing, and she's moving forward. She requested documentation. They're doing an investigation. The Albany County Sheriff and the Albany County DA uh, are doing that likewise, because some of these allegations of misconduct took place in their counties. So I think that's, we're not done hearing from those investigations. And uh, before the governor resigned, late Sunday night, 9.15, his secretary, Melissa DeRosa, resigned. I kind of, you know, you read the tea leaves. I, I don't think we're done. I think we're probably going to hear more uh, in the coming weeks and months. And moving past Cuomo, I just want to know what your legislative priorities are for the remainder of your term. Obviously, this has been a major distraction. And uh, I talked to a lot of our constituents from the right, from the left. And uh, some folks are like, hey, you, know, you, you can't, like, this can't take up all of your time. But hey, I, I've never stopped 
this from doing my other jobs, all my other responsibilities, working on local legislation, working with our partners at every level of government, fighting for a more affordable, responsible, accountable state that every New Yorker can enjoy. But the reality is we're not gonna be able to get anything done, practically speaking, to improve this state so long as we allow this culture of corruption to continue. And yes, he's, he's the governor. He's the highest elected official in the state. I need the governor to sign my bills to become law. You know, he requested one of my bills uh, for review on Monday, the day before he resigned. I don't think he's going to veto it. It would blow up in his face if he did, because it honors our atomic veterans. It would by rededicating a bridge down in uh, Yorktown or Atomic State Parkway. That, that beautiful pedestrian bridge is now going to memorialize and honor our atomic veterans that have been under-recognized for far too long. Um, so obviously supporting our veterans is always a priority. But uh, for me, trying to make New York a more affordable place to live with more economic opportunities, far too many of our young people, and quite frankly, our seniors, they retire, they leave New York. Our young people, we spend a lot of money in education. Our school, our school taxes are through the roof uh, comparatively when you look at other states. And a lot of us look at that as a, as a worthwhile investment with state dollars anyway, try to help education. But the reality is they graduate and then a lot of them leave because the jobs are elsewhere. The opportunities are elsewhere. They can afford to live outside of New York. It's easier. Um, so I want their talent, that workforce to stay in New York uh, to build the state up uh, for future generations. So I was actually, you know, I started our newspapers. I was living in Carmel, New York. But last summer, I wanted more space. I wanted more land. I couldn't afford anything in Westchester or Putnam County. You know, I have a growing family. So I, I moved to Fairfield County where my house is probably half of what it would have cost in Westchester. And my taxes are probably half too. Why is that just 15 minutes over the border in Fairfield County? Why is it that it's so much less expensive to live? So I would say multiple reasons. One thing is I know uh, Connecticut has uh, luxury taxes and they have a lot of, there's other different taxes that they have, don't have, but the big glaring one is that they don't have county government. (laughs) So when you say, yeah, we're in Fairfield County, it's more of a geographical designation rather than a, a governmental entity. Uh, that's one thing. Unfunded mandates that are on our school districts is a big part of it as well. And here's the other thing too. A lot of folks, you know, there's there's spending. Anytime we talk about taxes, like you have to talk about spending in the same conversation because uh, otherwise you're just moving the tax burden around. But truly, if you want to be serious about taxes, you got to talk about spending. But you also have to talk about growth, pro-growth policies, right? Bringing in business. When we talk about being welcoming, welcoming to businesses and businesses and job creators, that also brings in new tax revenues. You can grow that pie. It's not just about talk, cutting services. Sure, we got to weed out the waste and abuse and the unnecessary spending, um, but we also can grow our pie by being more friendly towards business. Uh, now, uh, when GE left Connecticut, right? I think that was Stanford or Norwalk. I would have loved to see them come into Westchester or Putnam County. Putnam County probably would have been a stretch, to be quite frankly. I don't know if they had the, even the, the geographic footprint for something like that. But I would have liked, you know, just to entertain New York. They went to Massachusetts. Now, these are other Democrat states, and they've somehow figured it out to be more friendly towards business. We're consistently ranked as either the 50th or 49th or 48th state towards when it comes to business friendliness. And that's not just because of the tax climate. Certainly, that is a major reason. It's also about how we approach business. You know, just the, the burdens that they have to go through just to set up shop, just to apply, just to get their their foot in the ground to try to build something here. Uh, we make it very, very difficult. Uh, we could be more welcoming. And I think that is uh, that would be a, certainly a, an important step. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, right when the height of the pandemic, the spring of 2020, I think it was around April, everything was shut down. 
I thought my business was going to go under. Frankly, the only reason my business survived is because of the federal government's uh, payroll protection program. You know, that's what kept us afloat. Around that time, I received a letter from the Department of Labor in New York wanting to conduct a random audit of our business, which was just really shocking to receive a letter when I'm thinking my business is going to shut down. So I personally, I was offended by that letter. And then I tried calling. I couldn't get through to anyone. And, you know, I handed it to my accountant. And I mean, we, I don't even think we could have gotten through to any, anybody at the Department of Labor, but, you know, we got this horrible, threatening letter. So I don't know. That really bugged me just to share that with my, with my assemblyman here. So. Well, uh, the Department of Labor was completely unprepared and I'm willing to give people a little slack, right? You know, once in a hundred years type of pandemic, I would say it's gone even beyond that at this point. This really is, I hate use the word now, it's overused, but it is unprecedented, right? It has been completely unprecedented. You know, I, I talked to my colleagues in government on the other side, further to the left, they want to do things like take over our, uh, how we pay for our health care with an Albany care, single payer system. The Department of Labor couldn't even process people's unemployment claims on time when they forced those people on unemployment. It's not because they couldn't get the job. They were forced on unemployment by government mandate, and they had to wait over eight weeks to get any sort of unemployment benefits. And my office essentially turned into a satellite office for the Department of Labor. Hundreds and hundreds of constituents called us up, and we were able to help them process those unemployment claims and get them an answer from the Department of Labor. But my point is, our state couldn't even manage that. So I cringe when I hear people thinking that they can manage taking over our entire healthcare system and replacing the private health insurance industry and on upending how we deliver and pay healthcare here in New York. It would be a major disaster. Currently, there's a lot of anxiety about the COVID Delta variant. And the anxiety is, isn't just health related. I know there's a growing movement about making sure masks are no longer mandated at our schools. You know, and there's definitely people on both sides of that issue there. I also know there's a tremendous resistance to the vaccine from a certain percentage of, of your constituents, particularly when it comes to their children. I guess, can you share your thoughts on these topics as we, you know, we're about to enter the school year again in a few weeks? Well, I would say there's a great op-ed that was published by Halston Media, by, by yours truly, about why I got vaccinated. So I would say I support vaccines. I think there is life-saving technology. There's a reason why I got vaccinated. I think if you read that op-ed, you'll come to realize my approach is a little bit different than some others. I don't believe in shaming people that necessarily think differently on this issue. I don't want to marginalize people that think differently. If people are vaccine hesitant, ridiculing them and shaming them in public will not get them to come to your side and get the vaccine. It will do quite the opposite. They will dig their heels in the ground and they'll be, see, I told you. So I'm not trying to go after anybody else for taking selfies doing the vaccine. That's fine. They want to promote it in their own way. That's fine. I chose to basically say, hey, here are serious questions that people have. You know, when people say it's not FDA approved, they're right. It wasn't approved by the FDA. It was emergency use authorization, which is a separate type of approval, but it wasn't fully approved by the FDA. It didn't go through the traditional clinical approvals, but it did go through a very robust clinical trials through emergency use authorization. It wasn't some, you know, willy-nilly type of approval process. It was, there was a major undertaking. So I think people should understand those facts when they make those decisions. I think it's important for people to get vaccinated. I hope more and more people do do that. I know there's, these, there's, a, there's always going to be another variant at this point. So that's going to be another major issue. I think parents should have con more control and decision-making on what's best for their kids. Generally speaking, that's always been uh, my stance as a believer in local control and local government. I feel like the nucleus for society really should be family. 
your core is family. And then it branches out to other local governments, county governments, state governments. But you're the, the head of your household. You know, you are the, the mentor, the leader, the parent. So I think that they're the ones that should have a lot of that control. And I completely oppose a vaccine mandate, uh, especially on young people, especially uh, when it has not been fully approved by the FDA. In terms of masks also, I, mean, I guess, you know, what, what are your thoughts in terms of masks in, in this upcoming school year? I don't think, I mean, quite frankly, I don't see the evidence, have not seen the evidence where a large community spread has been originated from school settings. From my understanding and speaking with different medical experts, and I'm not saying that this is a, the end all, there's obviously a, a lot of different opinions within the medical community. So people should acknowledge that. And just because one doctor says something doesn't mean they represent all doctors. And I would say the same thing for myself, in my opinions. For the most case, children don't shed this virus the same way that some adults do. Um, it doesn't spread to the same way. So I don't necessarily think it's uh, appropriate to be mandating masks in the school system. I've always, again, been a believer of local control and local school districts are elected by school boards. So I think that's a lot of the, if all the parents of one community want to have masks, then that's a conversation that they can have. But the reality is, I don't think it's on the overall picture that it is a net positive because I think it also brings other challenges. You have children with lesser means that might be using the same mask. You got snot for me. I mean, you're talking about two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds mandating to wear masks. Good luck. Yeah. They're going to have snot burgers and all this other stuff in that, in that mask. And then that's not healthy either. And there also is the very real social damage that this is doing for children, just being able to communicate with others. I do fear that 10 years from now, we're going to realize we raised a whole generation of hypochondriacs. And, uh, and we're going to deal with you know, adults right now, I think there's going to be a spike in diabetes. There's going to be a spike in heart disease. And you're not necessarily going to hear the CDC and the Department of Health say, oh, this is from COVID. But I think most people should realize that if you live an unsanitary lifestyle, if you're not outside being healthy and walking and exercising and just living your life, it's going to have a negative health impact on you as well. So I think those are all important factors that need to be considered. But no, I, I don't personally support uh, a mass mandate in schools. You know, sadly, I think there's also going to be an increase of cancer deaths in the next few years because, you mm-hmm. know, people held off going to the doctor because of COVID, you know, so uh, people were not diagnosed early enough. And we're going to see the results of that, I think, sadly, in the next couple of years. Do you know Lieutenant Governor Kathleen, and I don't know how to pronounce her name, is it Hochul? You know, Hochul, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor is struggling Hochul. with that. You're not alone. <laughs> and, and do you have a high hopes for her? So this is what I'll tell you. First, you're right on cancer underdiagnosed throughout the pandemic doesn't mean cancer went away. It means it's just been been undiagnosed, which means you're going to see a big surge in cancer diagnosis and and people getting cancer, which is is absolutely awful. Kathy Hochul, Lieutenant Governor, she's been Lieutenant Governor for several years throughout my entire tenure in the Assembly. She replaced the Governor's Lieutenant Governor, I believe believe his name was Duffy, uh, Bob Duffy. Before that, she was a county clerk in Western New York. Uh, was kind of known as this moderate conservative Democrat. I think that area was kind of, particularly that position, county clerk has always had a reputation for that. Mickey Kearns is a former assemblyman, is not, not a county clerk as well. She actually was known for standing up against what is now known as the green light law, uh, driver's licenses for illegal immigrants. So that was kind of her reputation. She got on the large national scene uh, by running for Congress, I think in early 2000, I think 2011, and won in a special election, took out 
a Republican in a or the Republican candidate in a uh, largely Republican seat. Um, and I think she was she ran on defending Medicare. Uh, she ultimately, I think, lost re-election. I think uh, I don't hold it to that, but uh, I think the governor looked at her as, "Hey, I want to shore up my base in Western New York." So he put her in as his lieutenant governor. So she's had this moderate streak, the centrist streak here and there. She's been a very good retail politician. I've met with her uh, multiple times over the years. Uh, she's been going to every ham dinner that the Democratic Party has has hosted. Uh, so she's probably built a lot of goodwill within her own party. I'm a group. I'm a member of a group called the. Um, American Irish legislators of New York State. Uh, we do a fundraiser in Albany uh, and give out grants that those dollars that are privately raised. She goes every year, so I've always seen her there. So I think it's going to be an improvement. My concern is this. If we go back in history and look at other candidates that have had a similar streak, I could point to people like our U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand was somewhat of a centrist, moderate Democrat as a congressman. I think she came out and said at one point, she, you know, she was endorsed by the NRA, I believe, or, or had support from the NRA and slept with a gun under her pillow. She gets in the U.S. Senate. You're running for statewide office. You're appeasing New York City. You go straight to the left. So uh, I do have concerns that that could happen with uh, the lieutenant governor. Um, I think we all have to be watchful and mindful of that. But I think it's going to be an improvement. And I think she'll help us move the chapter forward. People are concerned that she's she was the governor's like lieutenant, so oh, it's more of the same. What they don't realize is Governor Andrew Cuomo has marginalized Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul for years. Did you see her at the coronavirus task force meetings? No. You see him at any of his major press announcements? No. You know, she's a very prominent female elected official, and, and she wasn't put in there in the limelight. So I don't think that connection, at least for me, is something that I'm concerned about. Concerned about. Hey, Assemblyman, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Nope. Thank you for having me. Uh, it is history. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul will be the first female governor of New York State, kind of like the first female attorney general of New York State, not elected. Everyone thinks Letitia James is the first female AG. It was Barbara Underwood, who was affirmed by the New York State legislature, including yours truly. The first elected attorney general of New York is Letitia James. The first elected female governor could also be Letitia James, if you don't know. Uh, but, but the Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hope will be the first female governor of New York. So we'll, we'll take that. And uh, it is a big, important slice of history. And uh, hopefully we can move forward. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. Got it. Take care.